Hello, everybody. Um, you probably noticed this isn't Harry Sherrard and it's not Dick Bennett, it's Neil Bailey, the chairman of the members. First of all, it's lovely to see so many of you, both members and guests, back in the hall here, full up. Lovely to see lots of people. We know we're back to normal because we've had queues in the bar, so it's all back to normal, which is lovely, but thank you so much for coming. We've been looking forward to this for a long time. First of all, just a quick health and safety. It is a hot evening. For those of you who have got long memories, you may remember <clears throat> the first dinner when I was the chair here was in this room and I had three ladies keel over with the heat and we had to get the paramedics. I'd like that not to happen tonight. And Harry has very helpfully laid on a load of uh, water and glasses at the end. So help yourself to water, and particularly if you start to feel yourself keeling over, please. Um, I've said just now this is members and guests. Any of you who are guests and not already members, you've got absolutely no excuse tonight because Debbie Crort is at the back there on the table with all the memorabilia and the membership applications. So anyone who's not a member, I hope they will be by the time they leave this evening. So that's all my um, health and safety, if you like, an introduction. Um, Harry's asked me just to introduce his speaker today. Of course, he's Dick Bennett, who I've read a lot about recently. Um, knew of him, knew his name, but I've seen quite a lot about him on YouTube and other media. And the video some of you have been watching, you can go and watch it on the Brooklyn's Members TV channel. So it's on YouTube, so it's there. Um, delighted that Dick could be here. And I had a quick intro with him about half an hour ago. And he's obviously in love with Brooklyn's as he's in love with his wife, because I've discovered he got married here last year. And he got married in the room here. So it's a genuine Brooklyn's person coming here tonight. So congratulations. <laughs> And uh, I'll pass over to Harry, who's going to introduce him. Thank you both. Thanks, Neil. Yeah, I think you covered all the uh, health and safety bits and pieces. So um, we're extremely warm welcome to you all um, this evening. Um, if you do really feel you want a break, we don't plan a break, but if you feel we want a break, uh, a break will be suitable, then I guess we'll, we'll stop and maybe have a, a five-minute come for break. So, Dick, um, as alluded to by Neil, you have, actually haven't come very far this evening, have you? Because uh, you literally just live, live around the corner. Am I getting a bit of feedback? Okay, you just li live around the corner from Brooklyn's. But of course, uh, originally, of course, you lived um, a lot further away, uh, South Island, New Zealand. So, how, how did you get involved in motorsport? Was there was there family involvement? Uh, no, not really. It was yeah, probably my dad. He used to take me to watch um, street races in New Zealand. Um, then I took an interest, uh, you know, I'm going back quite a few years. Uh, so what, what, is, is this what you call a, one, a New Zealand street race here then? It was um, when I thought I was quite a good driver, <laughs> but I realised then after a while I'm be a better engineer than a driver. Um, I had a very highly developed Ford 100E, always finished second in my class, never won it. It was probably my driving lack of ability. So then I decided not to pursue a driving career and um, do engineering and motorsport. Okay, so what, where did you then go from there in terms of uh, going into professional motorsport? Um, my hometown Dunedin, is, there wasn't much motorsport, so I had an opportunity to move to Auckland. Uh, one of my mates in the Otago Sport Car Club, Alan Dick, um, he said there's someone in Auckland looking for someone of my ability, young lad, wants you know, passion for motorsport. So I applied and I was uh, 
72 applications and um, they got it down to five. They flew me to Auckland. I'd never flown to Auckland before. You know, I was 21, 20 years old. Um, and I, you know, I was quite nervous, like moving away from my hometown. But uh, did the interview with uh, Ray Stone, Dennis Marwood, Performance Developments, and I was this incredible motorsport facility. I'd never you know, been used to it. And I'm like, wow, I want this job. So I flew back to Nadeedon and my friend Alan put a word in for me and I had to fly back up again. The first trip they paid for, I had to pay for the second one. So I thought, mm, a bit tough on. But I got the job and um, I said to them, I'll be here long term because I loved it there. Um, Is this, this one of the cars you worked this, on here, this Camara? Um, that's one of the first proper, it's an ex-Trans Am um, touring car, uh, not touring car, New Zealand sedan race. Um, it was a genuine from America, it was five litre regulations, but New Zealand rules were six litre, so my first winter job was to convert it from five litre to six litre, and I read every book I could, bought all the bits from America. Um, I wasn't allowed to fly to America, I had to buy them all, um, and it turned out to be a fantastic engine, and we, we won a lot of races. So, of the two bosses, that was Dennis Marwood, but the the engineer guy, Ray Stone, um, very clever guy. We had a Alan Mann escort, um, Paul Fahey drove. So, so in, your, in your early days, you were very much an engine man rather than a ch chassis development. Yeah, that, no, that would come we, later. we didn't concentrate much on brakes or suspension, it was just how fast can you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, learned a lot since. Um, engines are very important, but the chassis are very important now. So, then you transitioned then and moved on into Formula Ford, then in, in, in the single-seaters. How, how did that transition come about? While I was in Auckland, um, Dennis took me to the Auckland Car Club, and um, every Thursday night the guys met, and um, he introduced me to this guy, David Oxton, who was, our, who was then became Formula Ford champion. This, this, this is car here, is it? That's, that, that's, that, that's, that's you, not New Zealand. That's, that's when you got that, back to the UK then, yeah. That's, um, so the trip for David was a free trip to Brands, uh, the World Cup. So he wanted someone to help him. So he asked me and I've, I used to sit in school and read books about Cosworth, Alan Mann, all these companies in the UK. I never learned French. I thought, living 12,000 miles away, what, what do I want to learn French for? <laughs> so I used to sit in the back corner with my motorsport magazines while the French lessons were on. Sounds so, familiar. So we came a few of us over, have done that. We came over to the UK uh, July 72 and we borrowed a Merlin M11A from a McLaren fabricator guy, Alan Burrows. And we ran that car to learn all the tricks of the British Formula Ford. Because New Zealand Formula Ford ran on slick tyres, these guys ran on shredded Firestone tyres. Mm -hmm. Quite massive difference. Uh -huh. So we got to meet various people, we got to the final round, but one small story there. Um, while we were doing all these races around the UK, learning the drivers, learning the car, um, every time we go in for a debrief, it was in a bar at the circuit. And this chap come across to us and he said, I watch you guys at all the meetings, you always have a beer afterwards. And, oh, that's what Kiwis do. Have a chat about what was good, what was bad, and it turned out it was Jerry Marshall. So, <laughs> and he's always in the bar, always used to be. 
So he became a good friend, really, you know. I'd read all about him when I was in New Zealand, Jerry Marshall. So mm -hmm. um, the other car there is um, another Kiwi, Jim Murdoch, worked at McLaren's. Um, it's a 2E Formula Atlantic car, not Pacific, the Atlantic. And um, that was designed by another Kiwi, Alan McCall. Right. So um, that was down in Newbury. Um, we were living in a little masonette in Egham and a little lock-up garage we had for the Merlin. We used to work at night on it, so we actually tacked in about six garages down a power feed into our garage, and the landlord caught us, so we got evicted. <laughs> we were in panic mode. How are we going to prepare this car for the World Cup? That, um, the black tow car of ours, we, David and I bought that. We've only been a week in the country, and it was an ex-Scotland Yard Hillman Minx. And that was our tow car for a while. Then we upgraded. One of two of David's friends arrived over closer to the World Cup. And we upgraded to a Mark III Zephyr. So we were much more hot you know, up market then. But so go, go, going back to the festival itself then, I mean, uh, you'd obviously done all this prep and you'd worked on the oh, cars. Thanks, Tim. Got it going again. Thank you. So this, this is the car now on the grid for the, uh, the final at the Formula Ford Festival. This is David on pole position at Brands Hatch for the World Cup. Um, and the guy alongside him, a Mexican, Johnny Gerber, um, we were quick. Uh, another little trick we learnt is the tyres they issued for the Formula Ford World Cup had a, a red dot on the sidewall. So they issued them on the Wednesday. We had learnt from running this car that the the more the tyres wore down, the quicker we were. So we grabbed all these new tyres with the red spot, raced up to South London, went to a tyre guy, and we buffed off five millimetres of the eight millimetres. And that was the trick. And no one else done it because they said you have to run the tyre. Well, it is. It's got the red dot on it. So that helped us get pole. So uh, pole position, so, so far so good. How, how did the race go? Uh, we don't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, lap two, um, Johnny Gerber passed David, it was a Grand Prix track in those days. Um, Gerber passed David down the back straight like he was standing still and we thought this isn't right. But David got into lap two paddock bend and he, he braked too late and locked up and into the arm go. So. There's another debrief in the Kentagon bar. <laughs> So uh, yeah, your, your, your talents were obviously uh, coming out and, and getting, getting cars going quicker and quicker. And so um, moving on through the, the ranks then, you uh, started working in uh, obviously higher powered cars and uh, Formula Pacific cars, which I think these are, these, these down under these cars? I, I spent a year at March Works Formula 2 team, but the politics was unreal and um, our chief mechanic was an Aussie and me being a Kiwi, we didn't hit it off that well. So, um, I couldn't cope with the politics. There was too many middle management hymens, so I left after one year. I got on great with Robin Hurd and Max Mosley, but I left and then I had an opportunity for this guy, Fred Opert, from New York, New Jersey. And um, I thought, he's not serious, he's always a character. But I took the job and the first job was we went to New Zealand with Brian Redman with a Chevron BMW. And I said to Fred, but New Zealand's Formula 5000, what, what's the point? And he never told me, but it turned out we were, there was four BMW Formula 2 engines to do five weekends. 
And I thought, why do we need four engines? And it turned out BMW Motorsport wanted to use a New Zealand summer to develop their engine. So after one race, we got a phone call, change the engine, put another one in. And I was going, there's nothing wrong with it. But <laughs> we didn't understand then what the big game was. So it was a good series. So then we came back and did Formula 2 in Europe with Keke Rosberg. Um, this is Keke. That's Keke there, yeah. This is 78 in New Zealand. So Keke and Bobby Rahal. So we won the New Zealand Championship in 77 with Keke. Um, the other driver was uh, Miko Kozarovitsky. You've probably never heard of him. He's a very good Davis Cup tennis player and he was better at that than a race driver. <laughs> um, so we went back to New Zealand the next year with um, Bobby and Keke and we won again and Bobby was third. So obviously your, your reputation was, uh, was growing and uh, one uh, Ron Dennis um, came knocking and uh, your next career, whoops, your next career move then was to, uh, to join uh, Ron Dennis's Project 4. He hadn't taken over McLaren at that time. Yeah, I left. I spent two and a half years with Fred, but I, I finished up being a mechanic, an engineer, a truck driver, an accountant. And I said to Fred, I go to America and rebuild engines for him. He realised I could build engines. So he was a great guy, but he just was too much. So I got an offer for, to join Project 4, Ron Dennis. And the first year was Formula 2. Eddie Cheever works BMW engines. But then the next year, um, Ron, we, we assembled all these 25 BMW M1 coupes for the Pro Car Series. And we'd finished them and we were absolutely knackered. And Ron said, one more. I said, no, we can't do it. He said, one more, we're going to run it ourselves. I said, okay, who's driving? Can't tell you. No, we're not doing it. And there's a couple of guys here tonight, um, Pete Hennessy, Kev Weston, and we, we gave in to Ron and we built it. And I reminded Ron, I said, don't forget how we're going to transport it. He said, the F3 truck. I said, it's a heavy car. No, you'll be right. So we finished this car at 3.30 in the morning, went to load it in the transporter. 3.40, the hydraulics on the tail lift blue. So we're all sitting there, what do we do now? So I went and rang Ron, 20 to four in the morning. Hello, hello. I said, Ron, Dick? Yeah. I said, remember that discussion on the tail lift? Yep. I said, it's just done what I said, it's failed. You've got to be at Silverstone at nine o'clock. Put the phone down. <laughs> <laughs> so we, re, we took off the piping, reworked it, aero-equipped it, home for a shower, drove up to Silverstone. We still didn't know the driver, because it was plain white at that stage. Uh -huh. And in comes a helicopter and out hops Nicky Lauder. And Ron said, is that, is, that, is that good? Are you happy now? I said, mm. covered yeah. in hydraulic oil. So. <laughs> um, so that was the beginning of... So you went on to have a, have a successful season. I think this is Monaco. He, he won the Monaco round. Yes, we won three races. The Silverstone round, Monaco round and... Um, Hockenheim, yeah, fantastic car, beautiful sounding, but Nicky was um, not the easiest person to work with. He's, um, He's quite, quite demanding. But as he, a... Yeah, he delivered the goods and we won the championship. He had a big a um, accident in Zandvoort and we had to go to Munich to repair the car. 
And then Ron being Ron, he actually prepared a spare car, sent it out to Monza for the final round. So we had five and five T's sitting there. But we, actually, we won the championship with the damaged car. And I think then you carried on in a pro car the following year for, for Hans Stuck. I mean, he has a fairly feisty reputation as well, Hans Stuck. Yes. We ran Hans for half a season, then the sponsorship ran out. So 1980, and we won Monaco again, and we won Norris Ring. But the choice to work for which driver it would be Hans any day. He was fantastic to work for. Um, and actually at Norris Ring, he said, I think the engine's down on power, and oh, we don't want to change the engine. We changed the engine and he won the race the next day. And he said, I told you the engine was not good. So, but he was a fantastic guy on and off track. So, of course, around this time, Ron Dennis has acquired the uh, McLaren Formula One team. So were there F1 opportunities opening up for you then at, at this period? That was going on during 1980. So Ron asked me when we stopped running Hans. Um, Ron put me upstairs in a, a very hot these guys who are here will know, um, boiling hot office up, not office, a workshop upstairs. And in the corner was a, an office with air conditioning, probably 15 foot by 15 foot. And in there was John Barnard and Alan Jenkins designing the first ever carbon Formula One car, carbon chassis. So we were, I was working on it, helping rub down the moulds and I'm pretty fussy on things. And every time I think that's perfect, um, John had come out, no, not right, good, not good enough. I thought, oh. so, so I went to Ron, I'm, I'm not enjoying this. So he said, right, I want you to take over the Formula 3 team. I said, I've never done Formula 3. He said, well, you'll sort it. So um, they were having trouble with the March 803. So I said to Ron, there's some Kiwi guy, Rob Wilson, he does very well in a route. So the route factory is only 20 minutes from Project 4. We jumped in Ron's Porsche down to the route factory. The two Rons, Taranak and Dennis, had a meeting. They come out and Ron said, you've got what you wanted. I said, no, I, I didn't ask for it. <laughs> so, and then we couldn't get this route going any quicker than the march. We were backwards and forwards to Goodwood, with Stephen Johansson, backwards and forwards. Back. Every time we go back, Stephen and I go, Who's going up to see Ron? Your turn or my turn? Because Ron, are we ready to race? No. But eventually we sussed the problem with it. It was too soft for an aerodynamic car. So I stiffened it up massively and we were suddenly much quicker than the march. So we went on to win the last four races out of four and we came from third to first in the championship. And um, yeah, and, and so doing beat, beat Kenny Etchison, and I was very much following him that season. So your, your run, run, run of form upset me. Yeah, Harry was supporting Kenny Etchison, and we pipped him by two points. And Kenny was run by a Kiwi mate of mine, Murray Taylor. So Murray wouldn't talk to me for a year. So, <laughs> but yeah. So th this then is the, the actual the, the Stefan Johansson car. And in fact, many of you have seen the film before we started today. That that's the car that's actually in the. Uh, Foyer then of the of, of your the WSR now the the, the yes, Hanson car, the car in our showroom is a double championship winning car belongs to Jonathan now but it's the same car that Stefan won the championship with so um, so you you agreed to run Jonathan Palmer the following year and as you said you won the well, won the title um, again the WSC the first year was Mike Cox he owned West Surrey Engineering he bought the car for Jonathan but they'd only ever run Formula Ford and they took the car, I took it to um, Goodwood, Stefan did 20 laps, 
Jonathan Hopton did a good job. They bought the car, they rang me up two weeks later, we've lost a second a lap, half a second a lap. I said, right, bring it back. Checked it over, I said, why have you done that? Why have you done this? Oh, that's, the Formula Ford did that. I said, no, it's, it's, it's an aerodynamic car, it's a proper ground effects car. All skirts, tunnels. Um, so I reset it up, took him back, and he went quicker than Stefan had ever gone. So I said to the owner, I said, you've got a good driver here because he's gone very quick. And I said, you've wasted your money unless you get someone to run it. And he said, well, what am I doing? I said, I'm off to New Zealand to help my mate Dave Oxton, who had just bought the big brother of this car, a RELT RT4. And I said, I can't let him down because he's put his trust in me. So we semi-agreed to set up a team. I took off home to New Zealand. We won the championship with Dave with the RT4. And while I was out there, there was no iPhones then, there was no WhatsApp, so that there was telexes, expensive phone calls. And we set up WSE, WSR race team while I was 12,000 miles away. And we, uh, we've saw in the film you're a fantastic uh, WSR workshops now that can swallow entire juggernauts and things. But um, back in the day, that was the, that, that was the Formula 3 workshop. I got back from New Zealand mid-February because my brief was a nice workshop, nice truck, I'll sort a number one mechanic, he can find, Dave was his Formula 4 mechanic, we'll keep him. I got back in this tiny little lock-up garage and I was, this isn't quite what I envisioned. But the bottom line is you can still prepare a championship winning car if you've got the right people. It's not the workshop, but we, we did struggle for facilities. So. So that sure. Was, um, that's photos actually 82 with 80, Peaky Mansilla. 82, yeah. So that's going on to the, the, the following year. And of course, b being an Argentinian, uh, Mansilla had some uh, notable motor racing friends yeah. then. Yep, that was... Um, what, what, what are you showing, Fangio? Um, Mansilla became professional, so we then switched the name from... Because Mike Cox paid for Jonathan, so the WSC then switched to be a commercial company, WSR. And... Unfortunately for Kiki, when Juan came over to visit us, Kiki had just written off his brand new car. <laughs> so we, we couldn't change the date because it's not often you could get hold of someone like Fangio. No. So poor old Kiki was very long in the face because he was one badly damaged car, but we, we borrowed Jonathan's car from the year before to do the first three rounds while we fixed his car. Of course, during that season, Ayrton Senna was winning everything in Formula Ford 2000 and then at the end of that, that year then in, in the Kiki's car that we just looked yes. at you gave uh, Senna then his Formula 3 debut this was the, the round that took place at Thruxton every, every year at the, at the end of the season yes. and uh, um, this is Senna on pole position in that same car I got introduced to Ayrton mid-year 82 by um, Dennis Russian who Ayrton drove for in Ford 2000 um, chatted away and then um, then Eddie Jordan said to me, oh, I'm, I'm running Senna next year. I said, oh, okay, all right. Ayrton come to me a few weeks later, he said, I want to do a test. So we went to Snetterton for half a day only and he blitzed everyone's lap times in the Mansilla car. So he said, right, I want to do the last race with you guys. In pole position first, fastest lap, and he won by about 11, 12 seconds. He got out of the car, he said, I want to run with you next year. That was it, on a plane to Brazil. 
No contract, nothing. <laughs> so here, this is your setup then the following year, and, and was, was it really just the four of you running, running that car again? We see what a massive team it is yep. nowadays, but it was the four of you ran the, the Senna championship winning we car. We upgraded to a flash transporter from 82 to 83. <laughs> so that was our, we're very proud of our race truck. Um, but yeah, that was, we just won a race at Silverstone. So mm -hmm. the Kiwi guy on the left, Tony Fairburn, and Dave Stevens was Jonathan's Formula Ford mechanic. And then Alex was our truckie, and then myself. That was it. That was our. Yeah, and we'll, we'll see in a moment how many people it takes to run a, a touring car these days. So quite a, quite da a, a um, different time. Sorry. Dave Stevens now went to America, and he's been working for a top IndyCar team for years. So you know, a lot of these guys progress on. So um, Senna obviously said it was a, it was a very um, robust season. Him and. Uh, uh, Brundle, Martin Brundle, there's a film made about it, in fact, uh, Senna v Brundle, and it seemed that Senna tailed off a little bit in the middle of the season, but then picked up again toward, toward, towards the end. What was, what was the reason uh, for that? Yeah, long story, I'll keep it short, but we won the first nine races out of nine, and I knew one day the bubble had to burst, and it did at race 10. We opted to go for an outright win at the European round at Silverstone. We had such a lead on in the British side, <coughs> we opted to go for Yokohama's to win outright. Unbeknown to me, Eddie Jordan had run in Europe all 82 on Yokohama tyres. So A, he knew how the tyre, and B, he knew Yokohama people, I didn't. So they had a 100% tyre service, we didn't. So Ayrton, trying to keep up with Martin, crashed and he said he had a puncture on the left rear but I'm never sure to this day what happened but that set him on the downhill run and we found out then we were having to run less downforce on the back to keep up with Martin and it wasn't till the end of the season we thought someone said oh Brundle's got a we both had Nova Motor Toyotas from Italy but ours was rebuilt in the UK so I thought, right, we sent Ayr Ayrton went out in my car, out to Italy, with the engine, his race engine, Nova Motor rebuilt it, and we came back and like, cool, what a difference. We did a half day test at Snet before the final round, and we blitzed Martin in his, because they were there. Eddie Jordan at one end of the pits, we were at the other end, both timing each other, there was no TSL timing then, so hand stopwatches. Ron Taranak had given us some 1984 side pods to try out. There's two parts, one geometry, he gave that to Eddie Jordan because I, I knew what the geometry was and didn't want it. So just before lunch, we put the new side pods on and Ayrton did five laps. He came and he said, they're mega. So between the new engine and the downforce, um, after lunch, he went out and just blitzed poor old Martin. But that was testing. So we got to the final round, Thruxton, and again, pole position first. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But trying to get a one-step advantage, the Nova motor was slow on getting the oil temperature up so the engine wouldn't run freely. So the oil tank had a, the, the side pod had a slot in it. So we tested it, snedded it, and we put tape over it to get the oil hot. And then Ayrton could lean out and pull the tape off when he'd done two laps. So I thought, yep. This is magic, it worked round snap, all temperature went up to 120, engine runs free, this is the trick. We forgot about Thruxton so fast. Coming up to the chicane about lap two or three, he, he loosened his belt and he could hardly get the tape off and he almost crashed. 
trying to, and that could have cost us a championship, but he managed to tip it off, tear it off. And several people said afterwards, why did he loosen his belts going through the chicane? I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but that almost, trying to be too clever, caught us out. So, so, so tell us, Dick, when you're working with Senna, I mean, did, did you know he was something special? I mean, did, did you sense he was going to become one first, of the all-time greats? First test day, he was unbelievable with his feedback on the chassis, his feel for the engine, gear ratios, everything. He was just one step above. Yeah, so, so you, you fully expected him to go on to, uh, to, to great things, obviously, in, in, in uh, Formula 3. His, his downfall was he hated finishing second. When he was behind Martin, I used to say to him, just finish, get six points, maybe fastest lap seven. I want to win. I said, just six points is better than none. And we, we went through two chassis, three chassis that year, because the aluminium chassis just folded up. Um, he was so hard, he was a very intelligent guy, but he just, he had this belief in himself he should win everything. And, and what, one of those great ones, he signed off in great style by winning Macau the first time it had won, run to Formula 3 regulations. That's, we, 83 at Macau was the first ever Macau Grand Prix, so top British teams, top French, top German, top Italian, top Japanese teams all invited to Macau. No one had been there, so it was a. This is the big, the big event. Poor old Ayrton was in Paul Rickard on the Wednesday before testing a Brabham Formula One car. We were out in Macau. All the other drivers had walked around this fantastic four-mile street circuit. Ayrton arrived midnight Wednesday night. Had to hop in the race car without knowing which way to go. And by the time we got through free practice, got to qualify on pole position. Yeah. And everyone just you know, shook their head. They've all been walking around making maps and all that, and he just arrived, bang. Yeah, really shows he was in a class of his own, really. Yeah. But he, he won race one, um, two heat races, and then um, the debrief, we, we qualified Friday and raced on Sunday. Saturday was free. And he was supposed to come up to the Theodore garage at midday, so they didn't turn up. He turned up at 6 p.m. and we'd finished the car. He said, we'll talk about it. I said, no, we've, we've prepared the car. It's ready for Sunday. He said, yeah. I said, at 6 o'clock, Harry, you know, where have you been? Oh, I don't feel well. And I still don't honestly know to this day whether he was genuinely ill or I heard rumours someone, he went out Friday night to some nightclub because he had all Saturday off and someone spiked his drinks. And I, I still don't know the truth. Yeah, but he went out and won it, won it nonetheless. But he won both races on Sunday. Between race one and two, he had to go back to the hotel and have a sleep. So, so he, he then introduced you to his friend, uh, Maurizio Google, one, one, of the, one of the few racing drivers, I think, to be sponsored by, by a chicken farm. Um, <laughs> yeah. a, a Brazilian chicken farm. Um, so our eyes drawn, obviously, to you sitting beside uh, Maurizio Guglielman here on the grid in the, in the following year, but of course, if you're observant, you will notice another notable figure in the, in the photograph here, Ayrton Senna looking on. So what's, what's going on there? Um, this is 85 and the rules had changed from ground effects to flat floor. So it was a massive change to the regs and learning. And we struggled the first three or four races till we eventually found that Ron Taranak had a design problem in the front geometry. It was going stagnant. So we found it. I got so annoyed after the third race, we went back to the workshop and we spent till one o'clock in the morning just 
going through the front end, because whatever we change, always understeer, understeer. So we eventually found it. I rang, I went down to the rock factory the next morning, got a pair of rockers off the storeman and took them away. Then Ron Taranak found out. He said, rang that, what have you got those for? And I said, just having a fiddle, Ron. And I said, I think something's not right. So we re-drilled the rockers, went out testing, fantastic, fixed the problem. So Ron then wanted to give everything to the other customer. I said, no, no, that's our exclusive for three of... So we had a big debate on how many exclusive races till the customers got them. So then got this is the final round at Silverstone Grand Prix and Ayrton arrived and we tested for two days there and got the car trimmed down to low, very low downforce and Ayrton kept saying, Dick, you haven't got enough downforce. The others have all got a lot of wing on. I said, don't worry, Harry, we're, we're, we're under control. No, 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 you haven't got enough wing on. He kept on tapping me on the shoulder, you know, and, and he was still looking at it then, just about to start the race. And I said, do not worry, we've, we've done the testing two days. I said, all Maurizio had to do was beat Andy Wallace off the line and we're gone. And sure enough, we won the race comfortably, so we won the championship again. Yeah. But they were very close friends. Um, I had a task, 85, to look to buy a house for Ayrton and he didn't want to use his name. So Muggins me put my name to all the estate agents and we went round these five very plush houses um, all around the area. He said, I've got to be 30 minutes from Heathrow to fly out to Grand Prix. So one particular house we went to as a gravel driveway and he didn't like the lady in the house because that Maurizio and Ayrton would ride tracksuits on, I'd have my jeans on, and the lady would say, who's buying this house? I said, one of those two gentlemen. Have they got any money? I said, <laughs> do not worry, one of them is, can pay cash. So when he drove out, he, is, he had a Merc, um, uh, um, AMG Merc, he floored it down the driveway and gravel going everywhere. I said, Harry, my name's on the essay and it's not yours. And he left these two marks all the way down. The well, I finished up getting a house for him down in Isha. And yeah, you had to do so much more for them than just the, just the engineering. The first brief when he walked in, the back garden. I said, what about the house? Oh, that's all right. He walked out the back garden and it had to be big enough to fly his little remote helicopter. That's all he wanted. As long as the garden's big enough, he could play with his helicopter. So the next year then you, you went through a, a, the beginning of a series of uh, Marlborough scholarships running different drivers with, uh, with Marlborough sp sponsorship. I think the, the second one was Alberto Gashi was first in, uh, Eddie Irvine, I think this is Eddie at uh, Brands yeah, we, Hatch. Um, the first year with the Marlborough Young Driver, um, we ran that from uh, 87 to 94. Mm -hmm. And the first one was Bertrand Gasho, you'll probably remember him for the CS Gas in London. He, he, he took a disliking to a taxi driver, so that's, that's all I know. Um, but then we ran Eddie Irvine the next year. and So he, he's uh, obviously had, a reputation um, of being a fairly larger-than-life character. You got any, any anecdotes about Eddie for we, us? We actually switched to Alfa Romeo engine. There's a gentleman here who used to help us out, Roger from Alfa Romeo. Kindly loaned us a beautiful sport wagon car. Um, Eddie... If Eddie was as good at concentrating on racing as he was at selling road cars on the way to a race meeting, he's too well. 
he arrived late one race and I, he bypassed coming to Silverstone to sell a car and the deal didn't go quick enough for him so he arrived at the track late and I was, you know, I had to sell this car, I had to sell it today. So, you know, he was, he was unbelievable what, and one of his mates had um, designed this telephone, this is before, you know, proper mobiles, and the aerial on the back of his Alpha was about 15 foot tall. Inside was a box about this big, and you'd take about 15 minutes to get it going, but you could phone around the world for nothing. Because <laughs> I'd be phoning New Zealand, other, the other guys would be phoning around the world. And that was Eddie always looking for the best deal he could get. And you can still see it there. All he had on his helmet was a Marlborough logo, no livery at all. I said, Eddie, every driver has a nice livery. No, I'm not paying for that. He's just, <laughs> someone can buy it for me. So, so next up then in the, the marble scheme was, uh, was, was Alan McNish. And what's, uh, what's, what's James Hunt's role in, in, in all of this? Uh, long story. <laughs> um, James was taken on by Philip Morris to be an ambassador to help the young drivers. And this is on the grid at Thruxton. We had two cars, Alan McNish, Philip Morris, and we had Derek Higgins with Benetton car. We were one, two on the grid. Derek got pole, Alan was second. Alan won the race and Derek got fastest lap, getting a slipstream from Derek, from Alan. Um, but pre the race, James comes over to be helpful. He's chatting away, chatting away. And Alan's talking to me on the, the old pal toy. Can you get rid of James? He's talking rubbish. Can you get rid of James? <laughs> <laughs> so I had to politely go around James. Um, Alan just wants to concentrate on the race now, you know, because James was trying to, you know, make out he was advising him. Giving him a bit of last minute coaching, yeah. yeah. So continuing then the theme now, we're at Dunmacau and uh, here we have uh, Mika Hakkinen for what would turn out to be a pretty, a pretty memorable race. So we can't really see him terribly clearly, but I think this, this is Michael Schumacher in, in, yeah. in, in the back, it's Irvine running second, yeah. and uh, Ma Michael Schumacher in the back. So you'd won the title again, with, uh, with Mika, the British title, with, with yeah. Mika Hakkinen that year, and then went off to uh, Macau, obviously with high hopes of, uh, of, of winning it. We won the British Championship quite comfortably with Mika. He's Totally different to Ayrton, the raw talent of this guy was as good, if not better, than Ayrton, but he couldn't give you any feedback. He would, he would do a, a debrief with his hands, you know, understeer, oversteer, that was it. Um, whereas Ayrton could sit down and write everything down. But pure talent, but um, one round for British. Um, Mika's quite a bright guy, but I didn't know till I got a phone call one Thursday night, immigration two here, Heathrow. We've got a Mr. Hakkinen with us. I said, oh yeah, Mika. Um, we're putting him on a plane back to Finland. I said, no, no, you can't do that. We're, we're racing this weekend. We've warned him five times he needs a visa and he hasn't got one this time. Can I speak to him? Mika, what's up, mate? They just want this bit of paper. It's only a bit of paper. I said, Mika, they've asked you five times, you need a visa to come in. So we had to get lawyers involved Friday morning and eventually we got him cleared to stay till Monday. He, we were up at Alton Park testing to go racing and on the Friday, and the rumour went down the pit lane, um, I'll never forget the guy, um, 
Steve Robertson, a driver, his dad, Dave Robertson. He walked down, he said, Dick, we've heard that um, Mika's not coming. He's back in Finland. I said, oh, might be. 10 to 5, Mika screeches up in his car, hops out. And I said, you got 10 minutes, mate. You got bed and some brakes and go. Hopped in the car, bed and brakes for two laps. P1. The others have been testing all day. Okay, we, we had the advantage of Christian Fittipaldi. We had a new little rear wing, a small jet flap, so that was less drag. So Christian tested that. We had a new front wing. Christian. So when Mika arrived, that was all on his car, all balanced out. But when he went P1, Dave Robertson come back and he said, we're all wasting our so-and-so time. We may as well go home. That bloke arrives, does five laps and goes P1. So that was his raw talent. Mm -hmm. yeah. So how did, how did uh, Macau go then after uh, winning, winning the title? Um, Macau pole position, again, he, these years it was a two heat race added together. So you win heat one, 15 laps, then you race two. So I explained to him after race one, the, the bigger you can lead race one, the better you are for race two. Yeah, yeah. So that was before, before the race, you mean, yeah? Yeah, before the before race. Before race one, yeah. So heat one, 14 laps down, he had a 4.7 second lead. I thought, good boy, he's looking good. When he crossed the line, he crossed the line one and a half seconds ahead of Michael Schumacher. Eddie, Eddie dropped back to third in our other car. Schumacher, yeah. Um, so I said, Mickey, why did you slow down? Oh, I have a big lead. I said, not as big as four and a half seconds. I said, race two, you've got one and a half seconds up your sleeve. You must, if, if Michael does slipstream past you, as long as you stay within one second, you've won the Macau Grand Prix. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, f lap, I forget, lap four or five, sure enough, Schumacher slipstream past Mika, and Mika sat within a second. I thought, good boy, he's listened. Because we had no pitch-to-car radio in those days. We couldn't talk to the driver. So, starting the last lap, he went past, he was like right up Schumacher's gearbox. I thought, and then we had no TVs on our pits in the old pits at Macau. And I heard this big cheer. I thought, oh, yes, he's got past them. So I ran upstairs to the TV, and here's our route in the Armco. He tried to pass Michael, and Michael just moved on him and Mika. One written off route Formula 3 car. It seems incredible that a guy could, that could go on to win two world championships, you know, couldn't understand this concept of, of, of a two-part race. It's just, he was <laughs> fantastic guy, great laugh, but also he's, when we ran Christian the same year, Christian was a very, Christian very good driver, Christian Fittipaldi. Um, he'd come into the workshop, well, we had a great night out in London the other night, out to nightclubs with Mika. Mika would come and I said, good night out, Mika. Oh, no, 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 I, I don't go out late. I don't drink. <laughs> Go and talk to your teammate, he's told me everything. Oh, don't you believe him? <laughs> yeah, so it, it was sort of re replayed in the future, wasn't it, when Mika Hakan and uh, Schumacher then went head-to-head -head for the Formula One World Championship. That, that, that incident was sort of re re replayed. And I guess Michael Schumacher trying to, uh, you know, out-psych out, out him over what had, what had happened in, well, in Macau. The worst thing, that, that particular year, whoever won Macau, we were racing in Fuji, Japan, the next weekend, and we were switching from Marlborough, Theodore, to Casio. So red and white cars had to be all re to blue and white. 
So we had to build a new car and re-liver it all. We did an all-nighter at Fuji. Um, and Mika just like, well, what's the problem? Yeah. So, so I'll tell you what's in the next, next picture. Well, before, before we go, it, it's, the, um, it's the sort of the, the, the Dick Bennett's Academy um, at uh, oh, right, the, the, yeah. the, four, the four drivers. We've got Eddie Irvine, Ayrton Senna, uh, Alan McNish, and of course, Mika. The, uh, the four of them, because uh, there we go. Yeah. Like I said, the, these four guys at a, at a Marlborough event, sort of all, all, uh, all graduates of your, uh, your, your academy, and three world champions, of course, because McNish did win the, uh, the sports car world, world championship. Yeah. And of course, another dynamic going on, Irvine and Mika went uh, head to head in the, uh, yeah. for the world championship as, yeah, to as the, well. It's 83, Eddie 87, Alan 88, and Mika 90. So yeah, that was taken at Silverstone on a Formula One test day. Um, it's a bit grainy because that's on a, an, um, what's it called? A it's on a canvas, yeah. We photographed yeah, it from, yeah. a, from a canvas, which is why it's a little, little bit like that, yeah. So um, the end of the Marlborough era, but uh, you, you then signed up Rubens Barrichello, who was, who was only 17, I think, which is kind of normal now, but he was exceptionally young th then for, for an F3 driver, wasn't he? He joined us uh, 17, left us at 18 as British F3 champion. Fantastic little guy, very quiet. Um, he just won a race there at Donington. Um, incredible qualifier, nine pole positions. Very good at getting the maximum out of tyres. But he never ever come round lead in one race. He was absolute rubbish at starts. So we actually took him to Santa Pod Dragway with his teammate Geordie Genet. And we did nine practice starts and Geordie still beat him seven out of nine. He just couldn't, he didn't have the knack of getting the clutch working properly, the right revs. And he was not that quick on lap one on cold tyres, but qualifier, nine poles. And the final round at Thruxton, all he had to do was, Coulthard was the other, contender. All he had to do was finish fifth. He was on pole, Rubens. He came around in tenth place. And I was just, <laughs> my heart, you know, we're going to lose this, but um, David Coulthard had to win the race to win the championship. And he was desperate and he tried passing a Japanese lad, Hideki Noda, and he hit and he bent his front wing. But again, I couldn't talk to Rubens and tell him, because no, yeah. So um, Rubens got through and finished fifth to win the championship, but yeah, it went to the wire again. Yeah, and he, he went on to be one of the, driving a lot, a lot of Grand Prix, didn't he? One of the highest number of uh, drive, drives in the Grand Prix that uh, Rubens Barrichello after that. So, so kind of changing the story now and moving on from, from single-seaters and uh, moving then into, uh, into touring cars, you made, uh, you made that, that transition, the first contract with Ford, and as we know, Jackie Stewart had a contract to, to promote Ford. Uh, how, did, how, did, how did that come about? How did, how did he go in the, uh, in the touring car? Um, we were, when the Formula 3 switched from Routes to Reynard to Delara, the Delara car, which we used for the last three years, three and a half years, it was such a fantastic customer car out the box. You could hardly improve it, so I got a bit bored. So a, a Kiwi mate of mine, Paul Radisic, said, you want to come and have a look at touring cars? He was driving for Andy Rouse. Mm -hmm. So I went to Brands and he introduced me to the Ford hierarchy and I thought, 
all thousands of people compared to F3 rounds. And um, I thought, this looks good. So we had a contract with Ford just to run the cars, not to design and build, because we were new in. But there was a, I have to admit, there was disastrous three years because we never got given good equipment. Um, and we won one race only with Will Hoy because of our pit stop strategy. And we had some fantastic wheel changing equipment. We had wheel nuts and sockets made in America, mega expensive, but we, we blitzed everyone on a pit stop and Will won a, a race. So, but we, we were asked by Ford to give Jackie a run. I thought, oh, this will be hard work. And to be honest, he was very impressive. I, you know, the guy to hump in, jump into a touring car, front wheel drive, mm -hmm. big heavy V6 engine, mm -hmm. and he, his feedback impressed me. He was so accurate with his feedback for a, a guy who, you know, wasn't the front wheel drive touring car. No, and that obviously had retired many, many years earlier. Yeah. So another n notable occupant of the uh, Mondeo was uh, everyone's favourite, Ni Ni Nigel Mansell. Um, famous race at Donington Park. So how did, how did that go with Nigel? I've got to be honest, I was never a Mansell fan till we ran him. <laughs> and now I am a Mansell fan. Um, he was, this particular day, he only did three rounds as a PR exercise for Ford. Got paid handsomely to do three rounds. And um, this was in the wet at Donington and he crashed in race one, not heavily, but bad enough. And he didn't think we could fix the car for a race two. And I said, no, we've got some good fabricators, good guys. So we fixed the car. We said, we're ready to go. And he almost didn't want to do it, but he started last and came through to lead the race. He got so excited to be leading a race, he started making mistakes and he finished fourth or fifth. But it was one of the apparently still best ever touring car races. Um, you had some, you know, John Clellan, Derek Warwick. Yeah. Um, and that was super touring, different to what we run now. These were all mega expensive. The rules were wide open. So it's much more controlled now. And so you then got a deal to run Hondas then also in, uh, in, in, in uh, super touring and of course worked with another legend yes, then, uh, Tom, Tom Christensen. We did a switch with ProDrive. We took the Honda off them and they took the Ford off us. And I have to say, I always used to look up to ProDrive and that they never won a race because I purposely delayed them getting the Fords so they didn't have time to develop it. Because it was a bit of a, a long story because we were, they, they did us hard, ProDrive, what they did to us behind our back. So I thought, okay, I can play that game. So we didn't deliver the cars till very late and they never won a race the next year with the same car. So I was very happy someone with ProDrive's name, you know, we were new to touring cars. So they blitzed everyone in 2000 with a brand new car. But, so then we moved on to Honda and this is year 2000. We ran Honda's 99-2000 and Tom Christensen was an absolute fantastic guy to work with. And we let him test the 99 car to learn all the British tracks. And he was going well, going quick. When the 2000 car arrived, he went and he said, it's horrible to drive. I said, mm. We knew why, but we, we wanted him to tell us. The people who designed it had, there was two teams, we were WSR in the UK and there's JAS in Italy. The JAS guys said, 
power steering's unreliable, so they delivered our new car with no power steering at all, which is absolutely impossible for a front-wheel drive touring car. The 99 car had about seven degrees cast. A front-wheel drive should have 12 to 15 degrees. Um, this came with nothing, so um, Tom said, could we run the 99 car? I said, no, Honda said we have to run the, they've spent all this money on the 2000 car, beautifully built car. So then I rang my old mate, Ron Taranak again, Ron, we're in trouble, come and have a look. He come over, he said, no power steering. I said, yep, you've got to have power steering. I said, I know that. So he rang Honda Japan, we got a budget from them to fit power steering. The German guy from Honda Motor Europe rang me, said, we've heard a rumour you're fitting power steering. You mustn't. It's a six-month project. I said, yes, we'll do it. Two weeks later, we had the first car running with power steering, 12 or 13 degrees caster. Tom, fantastic. So we went on to win the last two ever Super Touring races. And Tom said, if we'd started with that car the way we finished, we would have won the championship. So internal politics, um, but we, we proved a point that we could make power steering in two weeks. And, and I think you, you also in the team, that, that was the end of the, or coming towards the end of the Super Touring era. And you, you, the, you won the last two, the last two races the of that era. We won Super Touring races with Tom, and he, he gladly gave me his hot and sweaty crash helmet when he got out the car. It was a night race at Silverstone, so it proudly sits on our display at work. Yep. But he's, you probably, most of you know, he's also nine times Le Mans winner, but such a down-to-earth guy. So nice. Multiple winner at Goodwood, of course. He always, yes. he always gets the best car, mind you, at Goodwood, but uh, you yeah. know, he, yeah. he, he does have a pretty good, a good track record there as he well. He was in that big galaxy, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. About eight litres against guys with two litres. Yeah. And took so, up the whole track, the width of it. Yeah, massive, but uh, he can handle it well. So on, on then to uh, BMW and the, uh, the eBay Motors, era with, with Colin Turkington. We all know Colin, of course, a four-time champion, but when, when he came to you initially, he was, he was pretty inexperienced. We, we switched to BMWs in 07 because our previous sponsor, RAC, you couldn't buy an MG. So they said, why are you racing an MG? You can't buy one. I said, well, that's all we can afford. So um, RAC helped fund us to buy two kits from Munich. That was a 320SI. It was a limited edition race car. Fantastic customer car. So we used that 07, 08, 09. Colin won the championship 09. Then we did selected rounds of the World Championship 2010, which is this one, Yokohama tyres. Um, and we had a fantastic time, but we were dominating the, the works cars and independents and we were leading the independence by a country mile and david will remember we went to a race in bruno and we again were quickest in qualifying and the boss man of the fia world touring cars took me into his motorhome dick you are no longer independent why marcello lotti you're too quick you're too quick i said we're doing our job the car's legal it's a you know a customer car from BMW developed by us. We've got a fantastic team, a fantastic driver. And he said, as of now, you're no longer independent. I said, well, we're not a works team. I can show you invoices from Munich this big. And I said, where are we? He said, you're, 
you're, you're, you're in no man's land. <laughs> so Sunday morning warm-up, 8 o'clock, if you're independent, you had a little dot beside your name on the screen. Colin goes out, 8.15 in the morning, there's no dot there. So this guy's serious, we're not independent. I went back to his office in his motorhome. Marcello, you can't do this. Yes, you're... I said, why? He said, all the other teams who have been with me for years are going to walk out because you're too fast. I said, your FIA scrutineers strip the car, it's legal. What, what's the problem? He said, I lose all my loyal customers for years. I said, so yeah, we then stopped getting prize money, stopped getting, yeah, so, so we had, continued on. and You had to go with it then, yeah, yeah. to continue. So yeah, lo lots lots of success, including uh, winning the uh, 2019 BTCC again with, uh, with, with, with Colin here. Yeah, and, um, it's Colin right up the back. Yeah, just, yeah. just here. And of course, I, I was commenting earlier on the, um, the team that ran Ayrton Senna to the Formula 3 Championship, just the four of you in one truck. And th th this is what a modern uh, touring car team looks like. Quite, quite a transition. Yeah, that's a three-car team. Um, but yeah, fantastic. Um, Steve here, this one there, yeah. He's been with me 32 years. Um, he joined us in 89 and poor bloke's got cancer in his back and he, I cannot get him to slow down. He's still in at work. He's probably still at work tonight because we had a few dramas last Sunday. Yeah, we'll talk um, in a second, yeah. Would be an understatement. <laughs> um, so no, that was fantastic winning and I think now up till the end of last year we've won the Manufacturers' Championship six years consecutive for BMW. Uh -huh. And a nice, uh, nice line-up here of That's the uh, last the year. Um, we always take a team photo down at Brands Hatch. Um, so Colin's still with us, Stephen's still with us, and Tom's taken a sabbatical. He's gone out to live in Australia for a year or two. Um, and the lady next to me is here tonight. We're very grateful of her to be a long-term supporter from BMW UK. So. so taking things right up to date, um, I took that photograph myself actually when I joined the team. This is one of Harry's photos, not one of our professional <laughs> photos. Well, I, 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 think it's, I think it's slightly raw because it's coming just, just after a race. Looks as if um, Colin's had a little bit of a grassy moment here, a little, little bit of grass in the, in the radiator intake. So um, I, I, I kind of like the, the, kind of the, the, the rawness of that, fo that photograph. I think but, we um, just finished race two I in think, the wet at Brands. Yeah. Um, but then I might add, we went on to finish first and second in race three. Yep. So you, you've had a win for all three drivers actually uh, so, so far this season. Um, you, if you saw the video earlier, we're now running hybrid this year. So we enter the car as a 330E, last year was a 330i. So it's a um, fantastic car. The, the louvers and the bonnet are all 3D printed. We do a lot of 3D printing now. Um, all the brake ducts, the brake, everything's all 3D printed. And what, 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 is, what is the main, like the power difference of the, of the, of the hybrid? How does that change the... Uh... When you deploy it, it gives you about 30 to 35 horsepower extra and you're limited to how many laps you can use it um, in qualifying how many seconds. If you lead the championship, you get no deployment. For instance, Colin last week was third in the championship, so he had six seconds of deployment. We used to carry weight to stop the one particular car dominating. 
but now you have a hybrid deployment. And in the races you have 15 seconds, but the leader might only have seven laps out of 15, and then the guys who will be 10th to 29th on the grid have 15 seconds every lap. So it gives everyone a chance to get to the front. So yeah, so in terms of team personnel, I was uh, impressed, if you like, by the, uh, the diversity of uh, your, uh, you obviously have quite uh, wide-ranging recruitment practices. This is, um, forgotten her name now. Uh, Sophie. So, so Sophie, yeah. Um, I mean, a, a few years ago, you wouldn't have thought a, a young female would be number one mechanic on, on a race-winning touring car. So uh, I think the sport and your team in particular has really, really opened up. This is Sophie's second year as a number one mechanic. She'd been with us for two years as a number two. So we had quite a large debate at work. Do we give a girl a number one chance and upset one of the boys? And yes, you know, it's equal opportunity. Well, it was, it was actually quite hard to get a photograph of her because she never, she never stops. You can't, she never, you can't, it was hard to get a photograph of her because she, she never seems to stop for a no, second. No, no, she's very good, very dedicated, focused. And um, one of the guys we had to delay to be a number one has become a number one this year. So he's happy now because we try and promote people from within the company. Mm -hmm. so, but that was one of Harry's photos too. Yes, I took that one as well. Didn't, didn't take this one though, I was, I was around somewhere. This was the same weekend at Brands with a professional photographer and it's my lovely daughter. She's come across to help us, um, support us. Um, uh, and, and by coincidence, there's, have, there's Sophie in the front. I have reminded her, I came across here with Dave Oxen for a two year working holiday and I've been here 50 years. She's on a one-way ticket, so I don't know how long she'll be here. <laughs> so as Neil mentioned earlier on, you, uh, you actually got, got married here at Brooklands, and there you are on the, on, on the banking, appropriately with the BMW, yeah, of course. The, my lovely wife, Terry, we, um, my M3 competition, lovely car, that we decided to um, fill the photographer to go around and get some photos done on the banking. So, yeah, fantastic. It was... Um, 10th uh, July 3 last year, so yeah. And so there's a, a very passionate and emotional looking uh, Dick, Dick Bennett. I was just um, talking to Colin then, he just won the championship, so yeah. You can obviously see the, the passion still burning. Yes, yeah. Well, thank you very much ladies and gentlemen. Big round for, for Dick Bennett. You've had, a, you've had a lot of success um, in the, um, the various uh, race categories you've raced in. I just wondered if you've ever considered um, going up to uh, you know, something like Formula One or even World Sports Car Championship or anything else uh, of a, Indy cars or something like that. Did, it, did that opportunity never arise or did you just didn't want to do it? Um, yeah, several opportunities arise, but at my age now, I'm trying to slow down a bit. I do get pressure from a couple of guys at work, why don't we expand? But I'm quite happy being at the sharp end of BTCC. Um, but again, it's a team effort, it's not just me. It's you know, having good people around you all the time. Um, as I said, Steve over there, he's been with us 32 years. Um, and it's, it's having a good crew of people and supporters that keeps us going and 
you've got to have a passion for it, a determination and focus. Is, uh, if you want to succeed, you know, you can do it. And some of the guys here, X Project Four, know that you know it's it's not easy motorsport, but if you want to do it, you have to put your heart into it to succeed. And it's Neil and I used to battle. We used to work for Ron together, but. When Neil set up an F3 team, it was a battle of two friends, you know. So, but we're still friends, and um, it's uh, yeah. We have we have looked at other formulas, but the problem is we looked at going um, the the BMW M4 GT4, fantastic customer car, but some of the races clash with the BTCC British GT. So you need another crew of people. You need to double up in transporters, so then you've got to do the numbers. Does it work out? And okay, thanks. Any any other questions for, for, for Dick? I, I did mean to mention, and I mean, uh, a girl sort of alluded to it. I mean, obviously, you could have gone Formula One. I'm sure you'd have pulled in a, a technical director role in, in a Formula One team, but there's no no regrets at not, not, not no, going Ron, that route. When I worked for Ron, he wanted me to manage the Formula One test team. And little did Ron know, I shared a flat with four guys from Brabham's and McLaren's. And all I hear was them whinging and moaning. The race team would pinch the test car if they'd had a problem with it, and they'd had to build up another new car. The guys on the test team put in more hours than the guys on the race team. And Ron chased me for six months to do it, and I said, Ron, I, I don't want to do it. And I eventually told them, I share a house with guys in F1, and the stories they tell me, I'm not afraid of hard work, but it's just something you know, you'd be number 300, or number one out of 300 in those days, but now you'd be number one out of 1,500. So it's... So we have another question down here. Dick, with um, hybrid cars this year in touring cars, um, what's the future going to look like in terms of BTCC in, say, five, six, seven, eight years? Is it really going to go full electric following what the government want to do with road cars in 2035 or whenever it is. So I didn't quite hear the last. It, is, is it going to go go electric in, in line with what the government wants to do with road cars? Can can you see the BTCC going electric? Um, we're hybrid now, and Alan Gow, the boss, um, I'm not convinced he will go electric. There is electric already in Europe. The world touring cars. It's a very small grid this year. Um, I still love the sound of a racing engine, hence why I've got tinnitus. <laughs> um, uh, it's a tricky one. I can see it progressing, but me personally, I like to hear the sound of a race engine, whether it's a V8, V6, four-cylinder. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that, that comment was always going to go down well in this company, Dick, so uh, yeah. <laughs> Question over here. It depends what the question is, Neil. <laughs> we said we wouldn't mention that. Yeah, so you've got great recall for an old boy. Um, can you hear me? Can now, yeah. Okay. You've got great recall. And um, I first met you in 1971 when you were doing our Formula 2 engines at Race Engine Services. And you were just as fussy then. So my question is, uh, and they asked me this when I did the talk, how about putting all this down in a book? 
Um, yeah, it's. <laughs> I have been asked, and um, I've always said that who would. I'd probably sell three copies one to my wife, one to my daughter, and one to David. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's, I had, it's something I hadn't thought about till recently um, when a lot of people said, oh, I didn't realise you'd done this, didn't realise you'd done that. And there's still a lot more stories I could tell, some of them I can't go public with. But <laughs> Any other questions? Hi, you've had quite a roster of stunning drivers over the years, but is there anyone you had who didn't impress you, who then left and became famous? So I'm just curious if there's, there's someone you sort of didn't rate hugely at the time, who when they left you, uh, went on to become to great things, because you know, you've got such a reputation, such a, a back uh, uh, story. Is, he's saying, is, is there anybody that you, you didn't really rate when you were working with them, but who in fact did go on to become uh, pretty successful? Yeah, I suppose Eddie Irvine wasn't a, no, he wasn't no. a star when he was with you, was he, really? I mean, he went on to pretty good Most things. Most of the guys have come through to us to Formula 3 had been successful in Formula Ford. Um, when we first ran the MG touring cars, we, we had this young guy, Colin Turkington. Um, his dad brought him to our workshop. He was 18 years old, and his, his dad proudly said, um, my boy's um, Ford Fiesta champion. I went, yes. <laughs> you know, 80 horsepower little Fiesta. He said, we'd like to be with you in your British touring cars. I said, ooh, you know, maybe we need a test. No, this is Colin's dad. He'll be all right, trust me. And like, he's turned out to be now our four times champion. So at first, this 18 year old kid walked in the door with his dad, you know, and his dad proudly, you know, he's, he's Ford Fiesta champion, you know, 80 horsepower car. And, Another little story there, when we did a world touring car around in China, the, the BMW that we were leasing um, got written off, so we couldn't find another BMW, so we had to lease a Chevy Cruze front-wheel drive. So what did Colin do? He got his Fiesta out of the garage, he still got it, and he went testing somewhere in Northern Ireland to get used to front-wheel drive. So 80 horsepower, manual shift against a 400 horsepower, you know, sequential, and that's, that was his dedication. So that was one who I thought, you know, is he any good? But he's proved out to be one of the best BTC drivers out there. Yeah, and obviously gunning for his record fifth title th this year. Fifth, yeah, fifth, hopefully, yeah. yeah. But he's got hard work this year. We've got young Jake Hill who's pushing him hard, so it's a bit of a wake-up call for Colin. And how, how, how is Colin? Because I know he took a pretty heavy impact at uh, Ultimate He's, Park at the weekend. Um, we got the report back from the FIA yesterday and a graph. Every car now has to carry a little FIA G meter and a tiny little thing that sits on the centre um, prop shaft tunnel. And the report come back and it was incredible. It was a 40 G impact. So there's no wonder he's got a sore neck and sore shoulders. Yeah. I think, he, think you, you told me it was pretty much the worst accident you've ever, in terms of damage to the car, it was the worst accident yeah. you've had in BTC. We, we had a massive accident in 2014. We had a, um, the BMW 125i, Rob Collard, with eBay sponsorship. And Rob got tagged at Silverstone and he barrel rolled six times. But Rob was shaken up. They had to fly him to hospital because of the 
um, electrical, the specialist said it's like an electrical storm in your brain because when you go over so many times, your brain can't keep up. But he was okay, but that car was, it looked worse than what it was. We had it running two weeks later. Colin's accident on Sunday, the initial thing didn't look that bad, but when we got the car back to the garage, it was, and then when we stripped it by Monday night, it's, um, yeah, it's not sure if the chassis is repairable. So, but we are out at Crofton eight days time and we've brought his 2019 championship shell back into action. So the guys are probably still working tonight on it. We just got it back from the fabricators to put all the hybrid. The idea was that the, um, the purchaser of the car um, didn't want it modified for hybrid or the welding to hold all the battery and everything. So we built a brand new chassis for Colin this year, four races old, and it might be written off. So we brought the old chassis back into play, and he'll be in that for Croft, maybe Snetterton. So. Okay. Any other questions for, 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 for Dick? Well, I think the, the final question that has, has to be this, Dick. I mean, you're, you're 74 now, I think you, you told me. Is that right? Round, remember. round about that, yeah. <laughs> um, you've obviously, yeah. as we've said, a pantheon of stars Seven. and race. 75 on the Croft weekend, so I'm working on my birthday. So do, does, does, the, does the R word ever, ever crop up at all? you ever, ever, ever think of retiring at all? Um, I think about it and I thought, what will I do? I can't, I can't mow the lawn every day. <laughs> um, we love a drop of wine, so you can't keep drinking that every day. Um, no, I, you know, I'm looking at slowing down, but I... I have a passion for motorsport, and motorsport's been my career, um, and I still will be involved for, I, I shouldn't be saying this, but <laughs> I'm being looked at here. Um, <laughs> I promise to retire, but I don't think, I look at Bernie Eccleston, 89, I think. Well, oh, he's eight, over 90 now. Yeah, but yeah. when he was still running Formula One, mm. um, he was mid-80s, but... And Formula One's obviously a lot bigger than running a touring car too. So is, is that your target then? Formula One? No, no, no. St no still no. to be running uh, WSR when you're in your 80s? No, no. I still want to be involved um, and I will be involved, but um, like MotoGP's coming up, so David loves his motorbikes and um, we'll be up there you know, watching that as you know, members of the BRDC. So. It's, um, we often go to BSB down at Brands Hatch to watch a motorbike race. And the annoying thing is, next weekend is Goodwood Festival of Speed, and we're racing up in North Yorkshire. So it's going to be a fantastic event because it's BMW's 50th year of the M product. Yeah, and, yeah. and they're putting on a massive display. and. You know, we'll get down for the Thursday only, but we've got to do some work on Friday, Saturday, Sunday up at Croft. So it's, um, if it's in your blood, it's, you know, it's, it's in there, so. But yeah, I am, I am trying to slow down T, don't worry. <laughs> so, um, f fantastic, I think it definitely deserves another round of applause, ladies and gentlemen, Dick Bennett.
thanks for everyone coming along as well, from new faces, old faces, um, friends. Um, no, it's been, I was nervous to do it at first. Um, when I came along to Neil's speech, then someone asked me, you need, I said, oh, I, I don't do speeches, I'm, I work away quietly, but I've, I've really enjoyed it. So Good. You, 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 did, you did brilliantly, fantastic. Just to repeat what, what, what Neil said, that, that terrific film that's shot at WSR's workshops, where, where Dick takes us all around shows of the workshops and the cars and everything, that all sits on the Brooklyn's members YouTube channel and the Vimeo channel. So you know, by all means, go on there and, uh, and watch uh, Dick's uh, excellent, uh, excellent video as well. So um, thank you all very much indeed for coming and uh, hopefully see you all the next uh, mosquito talk, I think I'm right in saying, in, uh, in, in July. Very much a different, uh, different topic. So uh, thanks everybody for coming. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, well done, thank you. Brilliant. Yeah, you did fantastic.